Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, if you don't have a traditional Bible but you'd like one, just raise your hand. One of my friends will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. Or you can take your digital device and open the version, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures have already been uploaded. If you're watching us live on our online campus at one of our services at the Brown County Correctional Facility or at our Howard Swamico site, we love you. So grateful that you're a part of our family and we love you. So grateful that you are a part of our family. Thank you guys for plugging in and recreating church and investing and sowing so that people all over the 920 literally and beyond can be seeing Jesus and experiencing Jesus and coming to know Jesus. This past week, I got to see a picture of seven years ago. I actually posted it on my social media. It was seven years ago to that day. And, you know, there was about 100 people in a room that were so excited about Jesus, many of whom are still a part of what God's doing here. So listen, let's, I don't do this very often. Why don't you give yourselves a hand for what Jesus is doing in the lives of your neighbors and your family members and... It's amazing. Like last week, like 50 people gave their lives to Jesus. And so let's not like skim over that and sometimes forget the things that God's doing in here. And so what I wonder is how have you lived your life this week? Did you live like any of your days might be your last? Did you find your passion? Did you follow it? Did you fuel it? What I'm really wondering is did you live passionately? What steps did you take to do that? Like, like we're spending the next few weeks asking ourselves a question, what would you do if you knew you had one month to live? And sometimes I listen to that and I think, is that a grim question? I, I don't think it is. Uh, when you live your life with no regrets, when, when you live your life with purpose and on purpose, if, if you'd live your life every day with that intentionality, I promise you, you'd be less stressed you'd be less distracted, you'd be less preoccupied, which in turn would produce less regret and more purpose. Scripture actually says where there is no purpose, the people will perish. Can you imagine if you lived your life with a purpose? Like what if you lived your life like you were trying to fill a photo album or if every moment of your life you were trying to fill a memory box? Like, like just for a minute, think about what's the most outlandish thing you want to do in life. What if you started planning that? Like, like, for example, what if you wanted to take a family picture in front of the pyramids? How dope would that be? And I'm not talking about Memphis or Las Vegas. I'm talking about like the OG pyramids. How sick would that be? We'll do it. And I know that some of you listen to something like that and you go, yeah, right, easy for you to say. And I go, why? You can do that. Just start planning. Just start making something like that a part of your purpose. Just, just tell yourself, you know what? I'm going to take a picture with my kids in front of the pyramids. And then do it. Start saving. Stop spending. Drive a cheaper car. Stop buying coffee at a coffee shop and start brewing it at home, which is a lot for a guy to say when he runs a coffee shop. Don't eat at restaurants eat at home, and then bring your kids into the plan. Have them research the pyramids and then tell you everything that they've learned about them. Find out how they were built. Ask your kids when they were built. 
Ask your kids who built them. Were they Jewish slaves or, or was it just Egyptian workers or was it really aliens like that crazy haired guy on TV says? Like, how did they get those rocks to go in that shape? And how did they get those massive rocks on top of them? So it's a marvel. It's one of the most magnificent pieces of engineering that the world has ever seen. Ask your kids, how did that, that happen? And I get it. For you, maybe it's not the pyramids. But for every one of us, it's something. Like, it, it, it could be anything. I'm just saying, if you were laying in the bed at 11.45, the night of day 29 on your final month to live, would you look at an empty Starbucks cup and go, ah, oh, the great joy of my life? Or would you tell your kids to bring you a picture of you guys in front of the pyramids and laugh and cry together as you talk about the discussions that you had at the dinner table and the pictures that they drew in crayon of pyramids and aliens and that hung on your refrigerator while you planned the trip? It's just living life like it's not going to last forever because it's not. So cherish your children and revel in your relationships and count your blessings. And so to reboot our often apathetic outlook, we're spending a few weeks imagining what it would be like and what we would do if we only had one month to live because for somebody somewhere, they do only have one month to live. And so we started that process by talking about living passionately and I wanna continue this conversation today by talking about how it is we learn humbly. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're grateful to you. Thank you. You know, this is the day that you have made, and so we will rejoice and be glad in it. We will pause, and we will ponder, we will stop, and, and we will consider, we will think about the things that we have. God, we'll think less about the things that we don't. We'll think about the people who we have. We'll think about the relationships that we have. We'll think about the love that has infected and infiltrated our lives. God, we'll, we'll think about how grateful we are for all of the blessings that you've bestowed upon us, God. We, and as we think about those things, you, you'll make them grow, God. Because God, things that we put focus on grow. And so today I pray that we put our focus on you, our relationship with you and, and not our relationship with ourselves, God, so that as we focus on you, you would grow and we would become smaller in Jesus' name. Amen. Learn humbly. Humility. Somehow in our culture, it's become weak. But humility isn't a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of meekness. Don't confuse those two words. Meekness is not weakness. Uh, in the book of Numbers, uh, there's only one person at the time who God was speaking to, and that was Moses. And chapter 12, verse 3 tells us why. It says, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth, which makes the words of Jesus all the more interesting and powerful when later on in the New Testament, he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now in the Greek culture, those people would have understood the word meek through the context of breaking horses. It painted a picture of taking a Mustang with all of its power and passion, spirit and strength, and harnessing it, taking all that fire and putting it under control. That's meekness. That's humility. So in the book of Philippians, St. Paul, when talking about Jesus said, and being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even 
death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And there's a couple truths that I want you to see in that passage. First, if you have a traditional Bible, I want you to underline or circle the words humbled and obedient and then draw a line connecting those two because humility and obedience always go hand in hand. Listen, humility is not saying I'm no good or I'm insignificant. It's not saying I'm worthless or I'm small. I can't do anything right. Humility wouldn't be me standing up here and saying, don't look at me, close your eyes. This has nothing to do with it. Like That's not humility, that's insecurity. Humility is just placing myself under God's authority and placing myself under the authorities that God has placed in my life because humility and obedience always Go hand in hand. Here's the second truth I want you to see in that passage is that it says, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, pause, because that's a bridge word. Therefore is a cause and effect word. So it says, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the cause. Therefore, that's the bridge. God exalted him to the highest place. That's the effect. And so here's the truth in those sentences. If you humble yourself, God will raise you up. But on the flip side, if you try to raise yourself up, God will humble you. And I've seen it a thousand times in my own life. Every time I've tried to take control Every time I've tried to raise myself up, every time I've tried to have my own agenda and take credit or I became proud, God has always found a way of humbling me. Now, I love this little line that I read by Pastor Rick Warren from Saddleback Church in California this week. He said, don't worry about staying humble because God has a million different ways of doing it. Now, I'm a different person. People who know me, they know that I'm a, I'm a different person. Now, what you see up here is exactly what you get, but I'm not normal. I am a, a peculiar person. I am actually a bit persnickety, if you would. And so because of my peculiar persnickety personality, certain things irk me. They get to me. Many times they are trivial and they are trite. But there are many things that annoy me, many things that agitate me. And one of the leading things in my agitation is people who are self-promoters. You know the people I'm talking about that, 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 that always seem to be able to find a way to insert themselves in every story or every situation, and you'll start telling a story, and this is a classic line. Oh, it's yeah, it's like me, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, mm, <laughs> hallelujah, in Jesus' name, just deliver me from this darkness that has infiltrated my life. And really what you want to say in your spirit is... Stop. You know, it's just, this is another four-letter S word. Just shut, shut it down, up. Just shut up. Just please, I'm talking about me. We're not talking about you for five seconds. There's just some people who just, they just love, love them. But you know, the greatest leaders that I've ever known, they're not like that. The greatest leaders I've known are actually people who don't care about credit. They're humble. The greatest leaders I've ever known are actually also great followers. 
I'll never forget when my pastor Fulton Buntain was interviewing Pastor Sonny and I to be his youth pastors. And I thought I was, I was gonna wow him with my talents and with my accomplishments. I thought he obviously wanted me because I was such a great speaker or I was such a great singer. But in the end, he never actually talked about those things. In truth, he hadn't even heard me sing or speak. He actually took Pastor Sonny and I to a restaurant. It was Sherry's. And, and over a piece of pie, it was strawberry, he asked us if we could be teachable. That's it. That was the entire interview. If we could be teachable, we could have the job. And you know, as I followed Fulton, I saw him live out what he expected in me and of others. Even though he was pastoring one of the largest churches on the West Coast, even though he was pastoring what in the Assemblies of God they call a flagship church, over 5,000 people, he, he, he was on TV nationwide for 20 years, but he was teachable. He was humble. He was a good follower. Every week he got in the mail a, a tape, a cassette, and a little manila envelope from the Crystal Cathedral in California, and he would pop that cassette in his cassette player, and he would listen to the sermons of the great Robert Schuller, and he'd sit at his desk with a legal pad and a pen, and he'd take notes. That is humility. The greatest leaders I've ever known are also people who have learned to be great followers, and we see that in Jesus' disciple Peter, and as he learned to be a great follower, God raised him up to be a great leader. Now, he didn't start out as a great leader. He actually didn't even start out as a great follower. But as he humbled himself, God raised him up. So there are three things I want us to learn from Peter's life today. We're going to call them three principles to learning humbling. Here's the first. We need to learn from our losses. Everyone loses. Everyone falls. Everyone fails. The key to that is to learn from those failures, which sadly, not everyone does. So let me give you two things to do to learn from our losses. First, we need to take responsibility for our failures. The 28th chapter of the book of Proverbs, which is the book of wisdom, says, a man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and he forsakes them, he gets another chance. Feels like we live in a no-fault society, doesn't it? A society where so few people are willing to admit or accept their faults or their failures, which then causes them to play the blame game. And they blame their spouse or their parents, their siblings or their kids, their upbringing or their environment, their company or their boss. They blame everything and everyone but themselves. But if we're really going to change... We have to look in the mirror and accept responsibility for whatever it is, is our part in our failure. That's what repentance is. You know, I've learned God can't use me when I'm proud. And he can't use me when I'm proud, not because he lacks the ability, but he can't use me when I'm proud because he knows that I'll take credit for it. And when I take credit for it, I then start trying to be in control. And I try to control everything. I try to control my image and my relationships, my problems and my pain, my failures and my finances. And suddenly I start thinking that God needs me. <laughs> God doesn't need me. He wants to use me, but he doesn't need me. 
He can conduct his business just fine without me. He did it for thousands of years before my old self letter showed up. In fact, one of my favorite portions in this whole book is odd. Some, you know, everybody's got their jam. You know, it's kind of their go-to that they love. I love the book of Job, man. Job is my jam. Oldest book actually written. And so I love this one portion of Job where there's this really interesting conversation that God and Job are having. And actually, in a little backstory, in chapter 32, the book of Job says that Job was righteous in his own eyes. And so then there's this really interesting monologue by one of Job's friends where he's kind of like putting him on blast. He's putting him in check. I like when people get cussed out in scripture sometimes. And so he's kind of getting put on blast. And then, and then in the 38 chapter, uh, God jumps in the mix and is having this like interesting little conversation with Job. It, it seems sarcastic to me, but that's because I'm sarcastic. If you're not sarcastic, you probably wouldn't read it through the lens of sarcasm. But for me, I go like, first of all, if I was God, half of people in the world would have already been burnt up, but that's just me. So thank God I'm not God. And so the, uh, you read this, however it is your personality is, but check this out. This is so sick. This is God to Job, his homie. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Just tell me if you understand who marked off its dimension. Surely, you know, who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid, it, laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud ways are. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know this. And I read that and I go, in other words, slow your roll, son. I don't need you. I chose you. So if you want your life back, lose your pride and take responsibility for your failures. Here's the second thing we need to do to learn from our losses is we need to let go of our guilt. I love this little line in the, the gospel of Mark chapter 16. Here's the, the skinny. After Jesus had risen from the dead, some of his followers went to his grave. Obviously, they're distraught. Obviously, they're devastated. And when they got to his tomb, they found the stone that sealed the grave had been rolled away and the grave was empty. But before they could freak out, an angel appeared and he said to them, do not be afraid. <laughs> I love that, by the way, because like when you know scripture, you understand this is a statement of self-awareness. This angel understood who he was. I mean, there are instances in the scripture where people saw angels and just died because of the sheer brilliance 
So I can imagine this angel. Now, this is how I read scripture. You read it however you want to. But to me, this book is sick. To you, it's dusty. But to me, this book is so sick. And so I picture like this angel. And to me, angels aren't fat, half-naked babies with harps. Like to me, angels are like 10 feet tall and are built like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. And they got wings and some of them are gnarled up because they've been in a fight with a demon. And like some of their feathers, if they had feathers, some of their feathers got like ripped off and then they got super angry and took out their Thor hammer and smashed that demon in the head and little bats flew everywhere. I mean, that's not in here. Some of you are like, dang, where's that part? That's the sickness right there. That's what I'm talking about. That's just me. Like if I would, that's why God didn't have me write a book because it would have been like a horror story. You know, it'd been so dope. And so I picture like this angel and he's like 10 feet tall and he's like ripped like me. And he's, you know, the guys that got, they got the abs right here. They look like ribs, but they're really muscles. And he's like crouched down and he understands who he is. And so he's kind of talking to himself before they get there. And, and he says to himself, okay, angel, now listen, uh, we know this message is important, like, like maybe the most important message ever. So let's get our head in the game, bro. Like, listen now, don't be big. Don't be that guy. Don't, be, don't like when they come stand up and be like, Rah! you know, and you fed the wings and all. Ah! Like just maybe turn your brightness down just a, a little bit because we can't have these women die. They got to go back and, and say some stuff. So before you do anything, angel, you better remember Tell them not to be scared. Tell the first thing you need to say to them before you stand up and glow is you need to say, do not be afraid. And so they walk up and he's like, okay, okay. Oh, hey, hi, hello, me, just an angel. No big deal. Don't be afraid. Don't die. Don't freak out. I'm, I'm, I'm your friend, but Jesus isn't here. He's risen. He's alive. But then this next little line is the one that I actually love so much. Not the whole angels and the 10 feet tall. This is the part that I really love. The angel says to them, Jesus isn't here. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. And in this scripture, we see two of the most important words in the whole book. And Peter. The angel said, Jesus is alive. He's not here. Go tell his disciples. Oh, and don't forget to tell Peter. You know, the denier, the one that before the, he's still included. God still has a plan for him. Here's what God was saying. I know that Peter failed, but guess what? So does Peter. Don't you leave him out because I haven't. And I haven't left him out because he's let go of the guilt and he's learned from his losses. Y'all, if you had one month to live, one of the things you would need to do is let go of your guilt. It was 20 years ago and learn from your losses. Here's the second principle to learning humbly is we need to surrender to God's strength. When we are weak, he is strong. In fact, it is our failures and our weaknesses that really turn us to God. We're far more likely to turn to God in our struggles than in our successes. Now, there's another guy in the New Testament. His name is Paul. It used to be Saul, but then he kind of had this thing with Jesus, like an encounter, and then his name got changed to Paul. Some people call him an apostle. Some people call him a saint. Whichever title you affix to him, he wrote half the New Testament. So, so he's a very important person scripturally. Yet, 
Scripture tells us he had what is called a thorn in the flesh. And interestingly, the scriptures don't describe what that thorn was. So in true human form, scholars have speculated all sorts of possibilities. Some suggest that it was a hump in his back. Some suggest it was malaria or migraines, epilepsy. Some say it was a speech impediment. Some say that he struggled with his eyesight, which would have made his writing very, very difficult. But whatever it was, it must have been bad because Paul himself calls it a messenger of Satan. And he prayed three separate times that God would heal him of it. But God would neither heal him of it nor deliver him from it. And regardless of what that thorn was, Paul acknowledged himself that it was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. It was given to him to keep him humble. And so after his third unsuccessful attempt at healing, he says this. Each time God said to me, my grace is all you need. My power is best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Paul discovered what we need to. When we are weakest, God is strongest. It's those very weaknesses, those things that you and I try to hide, those things that you and I don't want people to know about that God wants to use the most. In fact, personally, it is in my struggles, in my fears and insecurities that God is able to find ammunition that will crack your defenses. So many people in my position want to placate and pretend that they're perfect. But listen, I ain't perfect, y'all. There's a lot of stuff that I did before Jesus that I'm not proud about, but I'm excited about the fact that God changed that. And so for any of us to pretend our perfection, all that does is just inhibit what it is that God God wants to do in our lives. And so I've got all of these cracks and I've, I've got all of these crevices and, and all of these things that, that the minute some people find out about that, some people who are really, really religious, they want to stiff arm the whole thing. But other people that aren't religious, they go, oh man, if God can fix that guy, then dang, God can fix me. And that's why every week, y'all, because I know me, every week I am fearful to be up here. Every week I struggle with these massive insecurities to be up here. In fact, the other day I was just telling my daughter, Aubrey, the worst part of my week is when I have to try to pick out my outfit, which just seems like trite and trivial to some of you because you're like, I'm struggling with cancer. But listen, that sounds small to you, but to me it's not because I have body issues. I have insecurities. It's why I have so many shoes. I use my shoes as a distraction because if you can look at my shoes, maybe you won't look at my stomach. I use them as a distraction to cover my insecurities. And can you imagine how much it magnifies those body issues to think of the reality that for 30 minutes at a time, a couple times a week, thousands of people are gonna be staring directly at me with all my bumps and bruises and divots, hoping that my shirt doesn't get caught in the wrong ridge and then add to the little more stress by the idea that I'm gonna be projected onto 16 foot wide by nine foot tall screens. But every week, I submit those fears and insecurities to God. I surrender them to his strength and find solace in the words of St. Paul who said it is, why for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. Y'all listen, nobody lies on their deathbed and wonders if anybody's thinking they look fat. 
Nobody's laying in the hospital bed going, I wonder if they're looking at my teeth or at my receding hairline. So why do we do that now? The people who love you don't look at you through that lens anyway. So what if you just took those fears and insecurities that you've been hiding and you admitted them? What if you just came to your spouse, you came to your kids and you told them, there's certain things about me that I, sometimes I get triggered and I act this way, but I want you to understand it's not you, it's me. It's this insecurity that I have from when I was seven and, and this thing and somebody said this. And, and when you begin to say those things and begin to surrender them to your family and to your friends and ultimately you surrender them to God, it brings them to the light. Talk about freedom. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna learn from our losses we're gonna to surrender to God's strength. And third, we're gonna pursue God's path. The 119th Psalm says, I run in the path of your command. You have set my heart free. And I love that word, run. Because when you are in the middle of God's will, you can run. You can go full throttle. You can go all out. You can live passionately. You don't have to sit back and say, I'm no good, or I'm insignificant, I'm worthless, or I can't do anything. Don't look at me. I'm small, or I'm insignificant. No. You can step forward and say, I'm weak. I've got faults and failures, but he is in me, and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Yes, I've got shortcomings, but he is strong, so no weapon formed against me is ever going to prosper. So I'm gonna step into all that God has called me to. I'm gonna run in the path of his commands. I'm gonna step into the greatness that he's called me to, and that is not pride, that is meekness. It's taking all that power and passion, spirit and strength, and harnessing it, taking all that fire and putting it under control. And in the book of uh, The Power of Ethical Management, Ken Blanchard writes, people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. Or as beautiful Texas businessman Fred Smith said in his book, Breakfast with Fred, people with humility don't deny their power or their talents. They simply recognize that they pass through them, not from them. Norman Vincent Peale said it like this. The toughest test for self-esteem is to bow your head and be humble enough to say, Lord, I can't solve everything by myself. I need your help. Or most importantly, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy my burden is like mm. rest do you remember what that feels like are you living in rest or restlessness see people who are restless are restless because they refuse to give over control because they constantly complain about current events or constantly check their cell phones. People who are restless can't leave messages unread until work tomorrow or refuse to go on vacations or take days off People who are restless miss soccer games, choir concerts, and dance recitals and end up having to watch them later on their spouse's little phone screen. But y'all, if you had one month to live, you wouldn't miss one more thing. You'd let work figure itself out. You wouldn't watch another important, precious, priceless moment on a phone screen again. But can I tell you, if you don't stop doing that now, you're gonna be on your deathbed and I guarantee you at least one of your kids won't be able to break away and you'll say your final goodbyes to them over FaceTime. 
It's not my, my opinion. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. Are you guilty as charged? Are you busy, preoccupied? Are you sowing restlessness? Just know, while you're working, time is ticking. I mean, what if you only had one month to live? It's time. It's time to learn from our losses, surrender to God's strength, and pursue God's path. It is time for us to pick up this book and learn humbly. The only thing that remains to be asked today is will you do that? Will you close your eyes all across this place this morning? I gotta tell you, we talk about salvation every week. We talk about coming into a relationship with Jesus and letting him be your Lord and Savior, humbling yourself, surrendering yourself to him. We do that through repentance, through acknowledging that we are sinners and that he can save us. But ultimately, you know, the ultimate way for us to learn humbly is to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And I wonder if you're here and you haven't done that. Say, Sean, I, I've lived my life. I've, I've tried everything. I've, I've hit the wall. And you're here today and there's just something and you heard it and it just clicked. And you, the, what's happening is the Holy Spirit is telling you that you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so this morning, we're gonna give you opportunity to do that. You really do that by doing two things, confessing and professing. Confessing that you're a sinner and professing that only Jesus can change that. And so here's how we're gonna help you accomplish both of those things. First is in just a moment, we're gonna help you confess that you're a sinner by, by in just a moment with nobody looking around, I'm gonna ask for people to raise their hand and make eye contact with me. Once you've made eye contact with me, you can put your hand down, but by you putting your hand up for me to see, that is you confessing that you are a sinner. After that, I'm gonna ask for people all across this place, everybody to repeat the same prayer after me. We're not gonna center people out or make people feel small. But when you repeat that prayer after me, that is your way of professing that you believe that Jesus can change you and save you. So this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you'd like to, with nobody else looking around, would you raise your hand and make eye contact with me right now? Thank you, thank you. Thanks, 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 thank you, thank you. Thanks, 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 thank you, thank you. Anybody else? Okay, I'm gonna ask everybody in here to say these words after me. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life, make me different, make me new? Be my Lord, be my Savior, in Jesus' name. Friend, if you prayed that prayer and you believed it in your heart, you begin what we would call your Jesus journey. Journey away from where you are and who you are to where you need to be and who you need to be, which is more like Jesus. And so we just want the chance to help you on that journey. So if you take that card that's in the seat back in front of you or if you're in a front or a back row, it's underneath your chair. Tear off the bottom part, fill in the part that... Uh, is blank and check the box that's highlighted in yellow that says I'm choosing to follow Jesus put it in the black buckets when they come around at the end or take it out to the welcome center either way we want the opportunity to pray for you and follow up with you I'm going to ask you to close your eyes one more time don't leave we're not done Pastor Sonny's going to come up here in just a second but I wonder if you're here and you say Sean I'm saved like I'm a Jesus guy or I'm a Jesus girl but you're restless you know you are I mean you're going to make it to heaven but when you get there you might be alone and when you get there you're going to be really tired so if that's you and you say, Sean, I am restless, but I want to slow down. 
Would you raise your hand so that I could pray for you today? Man, so many people. God, we love you. Thank you that you are a God of rest and a God of peace. And so today, I pray both of those things over my friends. Remind us this week through the power of your Holy Spirit what's important. Let us pause. Let us ponder. Let us act on those things. In Jesus' name, amen.